Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. Quiz time. What is the name of the librettist who famously worked with Mozart on three of his most beloved operas, Le Nozze di Figaro, Don Giovanni, and Così Fan Tutte? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. If you guessed Lorenzo da Ponte, you are correct. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we are joined by lecturer Philip Gainsley as he explores the music and drama of Don Giovanni. Based on the legend of Don Juan, Mozart's masterpiece has remained on the operatic stage since its premiere in 1787 and has gone on to become a cultural behemoth, inspiring playwrights such as Peter Schaeffer and other composers such as Liszt and Tchaikovsky. On today's episode, we will delve into what makes this evergreen opera as popular today as it was in the 18th century. Uh, I have been doing these for about 30 years, 40 years, okay, 50 years, <laughs> in living rooms, church basements, symphony halls, orchestra halls, and I've always loved what I'm doing. And I love that I loved what I'm doing. But tonight is special. Tonight's Mozart. Tonight's Don Giovanni. And that is special. It's kind of the, the king of the hill. And at the risk of aging myself, the first production I saw of Don Giovanni was not in 1883 when the Met opened. And that is true. Don Giovanni was on the boards here at the Met in 1883, the first day of the Met. I was lucky enough to see a great production of the 1950s and 60s by Herbert Graf, and with the set by the Russian-American artist Eugene Berman. And I've seen every production of Don Giovanni since. Don Giovanni is special. Don Giovanni has been considered one of the great pieces of art, any art, in the history of the world. It's that special. You know, depending on who's counting, uh, Mozart wrote, 22 operas. Some are on the bubble, some are frequently performed, some are seldom performed. There are three, though, that around the world, there's on some opera boards somewhere at some time. 
talking about Don Giovanni, Lenozzi de Figaro, and Cosi Fantute. They fall for the end of his opera output. Only Clemenza de Tito and the Zauberflöte came after them. So what sets them apart from all of his other operas? Well, in Figaro, Susanna the Maid outsmarts everyone else, including the countess by whom she's employed and who seeks her counsel. In Cozy, the boys play a nasty trick on their girlfriends in an attempt to wager on their fidelity. And in Don Giovanni, with a, a, a reputed 2065 sex conquests and another pen plan before the curtain falls, might have actually had but one. Each of these three operas smacks of perfection. The garden scene in Figaro is civilization at its height. How about Suave Sia El Vento in Cosi? What the three have in common, it's not what they have in common, it's who they have in common from all the 19 other operas. It's Lorenzo de Ponte, who in 1838 died just a few blocks north of us here. He moved here from London to escape his creditors. Before his conversion to Catholicism from Judaism, his name was Emanuele Conegliano. He actually became a priest, the Abbe de Ponte, and then went on to father two children. His punishment at age 24 was banishment from Venice for 14 years. The charge, malavita, bad living. Mozart and de Ponte met in Vienna in 1783. Mozart was 27 years old, de Ponte 34. But Mozart was far more experienced in composing for the stage than was de Ponte. Mozart had already had 10 operas under his belt. De Ponte had none, but he was an accomplished script doctor, repairing and completing other librettos. But at the time of their meeting, de Ponte had become very busy, so it took a couple of years for the two of them to collaborate. But once they did, what an amazing collaboration it turned out to be. De Ponte was Mozart's librettist for only these three operas, and we could talk just hours about him. It was he who wrote, Mozart knew very well the success of an opera depends, first of all, on the poet. Without a good poem, an entertainment cannot be perfectly dramatic. And in recent years, there have been several books published about de Ponte, and we're told that poetry was an obsession of his. He was comfortable with Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. He was also expert in Italian literature and Italian colloquial speech. That wasn't true of Mozart. The commission for Don Giovanni followed their successful Linozzi de Figaro, the marriage of Figaro. De Ponte was also the librettist for composer Antonio Salieri and Vicente Martini Salieri. Despite de Ponte's intellect and humor, in today's Me Too society, he would not have stood a chance. Indeed, in the development of the women's movement, he would face great opposition. And it's not just today's society. There was evidence that boasting of 2,065 conquests 
with 10 more on a single night, didn't originally sit well with the Viennese. Mozart was told that Don Giovanni was not meant for the teeth of the Viennese. Give them time to chew on it, he said. The Prague premiere of Don Giovanni was a different story. Wild enthusiasm. Mozart himself conducted. There were cheers when he entered the pit, and even more so at the performance's conclusion. De Ponte adapted The Marriage of Figaro from the Beaumarchais play, banned from performance by the emperor, too close to home, too close to reality. It was De Ponte himself who convinced the emperor to allow performances of Mozart's Figaro, and its Vienna premiere was, as I said, in 1786. Cosi Fantute was De Ponte's own creation. Tonight's opera, Don Giovanni, premiered in Prague in 1787 as Il Dissoluto Punito, ossia Il Don Giovanni, the rake or libertine punished, or Don Giovanni. It's loosely based on the Spanish uh, legend Don Juan. And de Ponte was also influenced by Moliere's 1665 Don Juan, or the Feast of Stone. And his friendship with uh, Casanova didn't hurt. It probably abetted his text for Don Giovanni. But composers such as Berlioz, Brahms, Gounod, Haydn, Mahler, Mendelssohn, Rossini, uh, Strauss, Tchaikovsky, and Wagner have all weighed in on the brilliance of Don Giovanni. 1787 was also the uh, year of Eine Kleine Nachtmusik by Mozart and the death of his father, Leopold Mozart. And I can't help but thinking of Peter Schaeffer's play and movie, Amadeus, which suggests that Leopold Mozart's death influenced uh, Don Giovanni, especially the role of the commendatore, who we'll talk about in a minute. Our conductor for the current run of Don Giovanni's here at the Met is Natalie Stutzmann, and she's also conducting Die Zauberflirte, opening here in a couple of weeks, also in a new contemporary production, also by Mozart, but with a text not by De Ponte. In an email exchange I had with um, Ms. Stutzmann, I asked her about the differences between Don Giovanni and the Zauber 13. She wrote back saying, Don Giovanni is much more dramatic and much closer to Beethoven than is the Zauber 13. The Zauber 13 has all that spoken text. By contrast, there are seco or drive recitatives, more often accompanied by a figured bass or harpsichord, and the uh, accompagnato recitatives accompanied by an ensemble. For those who don't quite know what a recitative is, it's so difficult to explain. It's either singing, talking, or talking, singing. So I'm reminded of the Justice Potter Stewart when he was asked to define pornography. He said, I know it when I see it. And you'll know recitative when you'll hear it. I also asked Ms. Sussman why the three DuPonte operas sound so different from Mozart's other operas. And she responded that DuPonte was a man of the theater, and Mozart's composing was always guided by the text. In Don Giovanni, she said, and in all three DuPonte operas, there is much action in the recitative as there is in the arias, which was very rare, she said, for that time. The recitative, she said, actually inform us of the feelings and the emotions of the characters. That, she says, is an incredible strength of the work. And she said it seems that Mozart had fun, just like a film director, close-up, action, cut, far away, action, cut, cutting again, etc. And we do know from correspondence that Mozart composed uh, while 
de Ponte wrote almost simultaneously. As a matter of fact, there's a, there a story that they had hotel rooms across the street from each other with the windows wide open, and they worked together that way. As a matter of fact, at one point, they did that, and unlike many librettists and composers, they worked together. De Ponte and Mozart characterized Don Giovanni as drama giocoso, a comic drama. The Met characterizes that a tragic comedy. The setting of our current production, in partnership with the Paris Opera, is largely monochromatic, a symbol more of the tragic than of the comedy. But it's also a contemporary production, in modern dress, set on a street in Seville, with five buildings abutting, inviting us to view this 235-year-old masterpiece through today's eyes. We don't know what's happening inside any of those buildings. Our director, Ivo van Hove, has said that the production should be seen as contemporary today and will be seen as contemporary 10 years from now and should have been seen, could have been seen as contemporary 10 years ago. What we've laughed at all these years might not be so funny after all. Today there are men and women serving time in prison with some of the acts depicted in Don Giovanni. So Mozart began composing a serious opera, and it was de Ponte who inserted the comic element, the giocoso. In fact, the opera overture anticipates Mozart's most serious music, that of the arrival of the stone guest. Three Mozart de Ponte operas begin in the midst of significant activity. In Figaro, Figaro is naively measuring the bedroom uh, next to the Count and Countess's bedroom. In Cosi, the boys are in the process of making their wager. And in Don Giovanni, 17th century Seville, Giovanni's servant, Leporello, is pacing back and forth before Donna Anna's dwelling, while Giovanni himself is trying to escape a botched conquest of Anna. And in the process, he kills her father. Anna's thirst for revenge is one of the opera's driving forces. Leporello's pacing music follows the final notes of the overture without break. Listen to Leporello's Nota Journal Faticar. Again, listening to, listen to his pacing music back and forth in front of Anna's house. To toil night and day for someone whom nothing pleases. To put up with wind and rain and to eat poorly and sleep badly. I want to play the gentleman. Notte giorno faticar, per chi nulla sa capir, pioggia e vento sopportar, mangiar male e mal dormir. Voglio fare il gentiluomo. Nearly a hundred years later, Jacques Offenbach thought so highly of Leporello's pacing music that he adapted it for the prelude to his Tales of Hoffman, set in Luther's Tavern. That's E.T.A. Hoffman, the A standing for Amadeus. The opera Don Giovanni is playing across the street from Luther's Tavern, and Stella, with whom Hoffman is in love, is singing the role of Dota Anna. Listen here to Hoffman's companion, Niklaus, and the adaptation of Leporello's Notte Journal Faticar. <laughs> Parla di Abel, 
And we'll save for another time the connection between E.T.A. Hoffman and Don Giovanni. And while we're at it, the writings of Alexander Pushkin, Kierkegaard, Bernard Shaw, Albert Camus, all were influenced by Mozart's opera. We know from Figaro's text that the opera takes place on a day of torments, caprice, and folly. No such explanation uh, is in Don Giovanni, but it's likely that Duponte had well, maybe a few days uh, for the span of the opera. Most of the opera scenes are set at night, including the opening scene. Interrupting Leporello's pacing is Donna Anna, grasping the masked Don Giovanni, his attempted assault having failed. She persists in learning his identity, but that too fails as her father, the commendatore, that is the commander of Seville, attempts to rescue his daughter, but is slain by Giovanni in the process. So in the first minutes of the opera, we have a failed rape and a murder. Anna faints. Here we're introduced to Anna's betrothed, Ottavio, who plies her with remedies. And from this point on in the opera, you never see Anna without seeing Ottavio and vice versa. When things settle down, Leporello asked Giovanni, who's dead, you or the old man? That's drama jocoso. Leporello says, well done. Two misdeeds. First, you rape the daughter, then you murder the father. It's to be noted that uh, Duponti more likely shared Giovanni's libertine DNA than did Mozart, but there are some writings that Mozart had his day as well. Donna Anna obsessively spends the duration of the opera in search of her father's murderer. She insists that Ottavio pledged to assist her, and in fact, that's the only use she has for him. The Anna scene was the first of Giovanni's failed conquests, and we learn through the course of the opera that Don Giovanni does not live up to his reputation as the great womanizer. Some fault Duponte's libretto as a sequence of events with no true storyline, and that might be true, but the sequence reveals Giovanni's failed conquest, which is the essence of the text. And besides, Mozart's score makes up for any deficiencies of the text. We're no longer past Anna when we meet Elvira, who's come several hundred miles across Spain from Burgos to Seville in search of a husband who left her. It turns out that that husband is Don Giovanni. If in, he indeed was married to Elvira, knowing him was more of a conquest than a marriage. I can't conceive of Don Giovanni being a husband. But Duponte was influenced by Moliere's play, Don Juan, in which the two of them actually were married. So uh, some uh, Don Juan iterations, Elvira was uh, seduced from the convent by Don Giovanni. Here's Elvira's entrance. Listen to the stately entrance. And then she says, who will ever tell me where that master is, to whom, to my shame, I loved, who broke faith in me. Stately entrance. Very dignified.
it says a lot about Giovanni that he seeks to take advantage of a very vulnerable lady at her lowest point, and the only impediment is that he was the source of her distress. In a sacro retributive, as uh, Ms. Switzman was explaining, Elvira says, you stole into my house. With fair words, vows, and flattery, you succeeded in seducing my affections. You gained my love, cruel one. You declared me your wife. And three days later, you cast aside the most sacred tie of earth and heaven. Three days later, you left Burgos. Giovanni leaves to Leporello the task of defending Giovanni's behavior. You know, if you don't believe me, believe him. And Leporello is stuck there with Elvira, double-talking, before he commences his Matamina, this brilliant so-called catalog aria, where he recites a list of Giovanni's claimed episodes, all 2,065 of them, to Elvira, who believes herself Giovanni's wife. How sordid is that? All she can do is sit there and listen to her husband's sexual activities. Drama? Yes. Jacosa? Maybe. For 235 years, audiences have laughed with the catalog aria, and of course it's musical brilliance. But it's one thing to say, in Spain 1003, in Italy 640, but it's quite another to boast, you know what he does with virgins. So we've met Anna, we've met Elvira, but for a complete change of pace and music style, he and Leporello come across a rustic wedding party. Zerlina is about to wed Mazzetto. Listen to Mozart's rustic introduction. This is music different from anything we've heard so far in the opera. Followed by Zerlina, then Mazzetto, sharing the same melody. Listen, if you can, to the innocence. Here's first Zerlina, then Mazzetto. Uh, this is Ying Fang and Alfred Walker, who are the Zerlina and Mazzetto of the current Don Giovanni. So just as Leporello suggested in the catalog, Giovanni instantly is driven to the young innocent, Zerlina, on her wedding day, no less. Zerlina introduces Giovanni to Mazzetto, who responds, at your service with no idea what those words mean to Don Giovanni. And as abusive as Giovanni is, Mozart gives us this sublime, seductive duet between Giovanni and Zerlina. Giovanni proposes to the bride, who he says is too good for Mazzetto, while Leporello dispatches Mazzetto, who expects the worst. He's not such a bumpkin as he's usually portrayed. As a matter of fact, he's pretty perceptive. Here is Giovanni's invitation to his villa. Here's the duet, and listen for Zerlina's ambivalence. The Prague audience demanded 
three repeats of this uh, before the opera could proceed. Here's Peter Matei as Giovanni and Ying Feng as Zerlina. And there I'll give you my hand and listen to her say, I want to, but I don't want to. Little more than 50 years after Don Giovanni's premiere, while its melodies were raining all over, Franz Liszt composed his Themes of Don Giovanni for piano. Listen here, courtesy of pianist Lang Lang, to what Liszt did with La Ciderum La Mano. As with the Offenbach reference to Nota Giorno Faticar, Liszt assumed that his audience remained familiar with the topic of variations. It doesn't really work to have variations unless people are familiar with the actual theme. So for the moment, Giovanni wins, and he and Zerlina assuage the pangs innocent of love. And let me play you their excerpt because Mozart brings them together musically. As luck would have it, Elvira intercedes and leads Zerlina from Giovanni's clutches. This is yet another example of how Giovanni's conquests are foiled. Anna and Ottavio enter, and then there's this great quartet. Elvira warns them that Giovanni cannot be trusted, and Giovanni says, she's gone mad, Pazza, he says. And if there were ever any question about doing opera in the original language, this should solve the answer. Note the rhyming. This rhyming is Duponte's work, as Mozart was not uh, big on rhyming. He disliked rhyme, but Duponte succeeded. Ottavio, I'll not leave here till I know how matters stand. Lafarge, matters. Anna, her behavior and her speech, il suo parlar, don't look like madness. Giovanni, qualche cosa sospitar. If I make off now, they might expect something. Elvira, lender alma judicar. From such a face, one ought to be able to judge you know, whether she's mad. So we have, listen to this, Ottavio Lafar, Anna Sua Parlar, Giovanni Sospitar, and Elvira Almajudicar. And listen to what Mozart does with those four. Anna. Giovanni. And Elvira. 
Anna and Otavio are inclined to agree with Elvira. Anna saying, her behavior, her speech, they don't look like madness. Now comes the great revelation scene. Up to now, Giovanni has escaped detection as the murderer of Anna's father. But as is often the case, one word too much signals the beginning of the end. As Giovanni takes his leave with Amici Adio, his voice betrays him, and Anna recognizes him as her father's killer. Listen here to how Mozart turns on the light bulb above her head when it dawns on her that the voice she just heard was the voice of her father's murderer. You'll hear Amici Adio, you'll hear the double basses, and then suddenly this explosion. Don Ottavio, I'm dead. What happened? Help me. That man was my father's murderer. In a wretched detective, the kind referred to by Ms. Dutzmann, Anna recounts those awful moments of the first scene. She saw a man with a dark cloak enter, whom she first thought to be Ottavio. He approached her and tried to embrace her. She later figured out it wasn't Ottavio, and she cried for help. The villain flees, she says, but she followed him into the street. I met once, she says, the assailed and the assailant. And this explains why. When the curtain goes up following the overture, you'll see Giovanni ahead of her as they leave the house. She's trying to bring him back to learn his identity. So my father came to help, she says, but the stranger completed the crime by killing him. Ottavio is stunned. Don Giovanni? Un cavaliere? He will undeceive Anna and avenge her. So here, Mozart and de Ponte wrote an aria for Ottavio for the 1788 Vienna production, Dalla Sua Pace, on her peace of mind, My Own Depends. Later in the performance, we'll hear Ottavio's Il Mio Tesoro, which 200 years ago, some tenors just found too difficult to sing. So Mozart and De Ponte composed Dalla Sua Pace as a replacement and placed it here. Fortunately, nowadays, most productions give us both, and it's ironic that the opera's weakest character is given two of Mozart's arguably greatest tenor arias. I once asked the Met tenor Matthew Polanzani on my podcast if there was anything better than Io Me Tesoro, and he shot back and said, are you kidding? Della Sua Pace. So I'm going to let him do the honors.
Later, when Leporello and Giovanni meet up, Giovanni plans a great feast. Invite any pretty girl you find in town. I will toy with one and then another until by morning our list is augmented by 10. By the way, in case you're wondering, Duponte doesn't tell us how old <laughs> Giovanni is. This is the so-called champagne area, and there's no mention of champagne in it, but examine it in today's context. Ply them with vino, and I will have my own fun making love to one or the other, and by tomorrow morning, my list should be by another 10. The aria is clearly sexual, and in this production, maybe even violent. But here's our Don Giovanni, Peter Mattei, But what is the most interesting to me musically is when he says, without any set order, let the dancing be. Some the minuet, some the folia, some the alamonde. Listen to him recite the dances. The scene changes to Giovanni's country estate. Zerlina assures Mazzetto of her innocence, and he is almost assured until they hear Don Giovanni's voice, and that makes her on edge, and that brings back suspicions. Mazzetto has his suspicions about Zerlina and Giovanni. I do too, by the way. And he hides himself in a crevice to watch what's happening between the two of them. But Giovanni unwittingly dances Zerlina into that crevice. And they meet Mazzetto, who's looking at them. And the quick-witted Giovanni says to uh, Mazzetto, Zerlina just can't be without you. Musically, so much happens now till the end of the act. And if any particular passage demonstrate Mozart's genius, this does, as if we need a reminder. Mozart's studied dance, especially carnival balls, masquerade, and pantomime in general. He often hosted his own galas in his home and charged admission. Okay, so the masked Anna, Elvira, and Ottavio are outside Giovanni's balcony. They've come to confront Giovanni over the commendatory's murder. Listen to this. It's night, as most of the scenes begin. The masked Anna, Elvira, and Ottavio stand before Giovanni's balcony. Masks were common in Dupont's age. Carnival lasted maybe half a year. So from the pit, we're going to hear the minuet. Leporello tells Giovanni of the gallant maskers. And Giovanni says, tell them they do us honor. In other words, bring them in. And the three overhear Giovanni. They hear the voice. And they say, that's the voice and face of the traitor. And you'll hear Leporello calling him down. And the two ladies are stunned. They defer to Ottavio. And Ottavio says they enter. But listen to the minuet here from the pit. Now listen for Leporello. Signor, guardate un po', che maschere galanti, 
Giovanni, welcome them in. The three recognize him. Octavio enters. Giovanni has hired three small orchestras. You'll see them there, left, center, and right. The music for this ballroom scene dates back to when Mozart composed dances for carnival. Orchestra one is the minuet for Anna and Ottavio. Orchestra two is the contradance, the folia referred to by Giovanni, danced by Giovanni and Zerlina. And orchestra three is the Alamonde, in which Leporello forces Mazzetto to dance. So I asked our maestro, Natalie Stutzmann, about the challenge of three bands on stage, plus the pit, plus your performers, your singers. And she said, what's important for me to take up that challenge is to keep a pulse that's dancing and that allows the three orchestras to be adjusted together. It's very important, she said, to keep a dance pulse with strong and weak beats. Listen here to Mozart's combining all three orchestras. And I'm telling you, you have to see it Hearing it helps, but you have to actually be there in the theater and watch these three. And by the way, keep an eye on the conductor. We have, from now to the end of the act, is an absolute miracle. Giovanni says to the orchestra one, he says to Leporello, pair off the dancers. And Leporello says to Mazzetto, come, dance away. They're trying to get rid of him. So listen for orchestra one as Giovanni says to Leporello, Pair off the dancers, the ballerini. Orchestra one. As Giovanni tells Leporello to keep Mazzetto occupied, he says to Zerlina, I'm your partner. And here we have orchestra number two. Do you hear the two? 
Leporello then forces Mazzetto to dance while Giovanni corners Zerlina. And you hear her saying, oh, heavens, I've been, I've been betrayed. Now you'll hear all three bands at once, stopped only when Zerlina screams, Gente, aiuto, help me. Giovanni has attacked her. You know, it might be apocryphal, but when Mozart was in the pit conducting this, he didn't like the way Zerlina screamed. So he got out of the pit, walked backstage, and at the appropriate time, he pinched her, and then she uh, let out the perfect scream. (laughs) Giovanni dragged Leporello in and makes him the culprit, and he escapes, as he always does. The second act of Don Giovanni begins with Leporello employing his master to give up women. Giovanni says, in what once was a comic line, I need women as much as the bread I eat and the air I breathe. 235 years later, it might not be so funny. To make such an admission today might be calling out for addiction therapy. And it doesn't get the audible response in the audience as it used to get. We know more today. But having said that, we cannot forget that Don Giovanni is fiction. He's a myth, not a real person. And maybe it's dangerous for us to compare that myth with humanity. For more on that, let me refer you to a book I just finished by Professor Richard Will, Don Giovanni Captured, Performance, Media, and Myth, University of Chicago Press. It says a lot about that subject. In any event, Giovanni buys off Leporello, and nothing more comes of the discussion. But here comes a perfect example of Giovanni's affliction. It's nightfall, and we're in front of Elvira's house. Done with Elvira, he now tries his luck, la mia sorte, with her maid, and he directs Leporello to exchange clothing with him beneath Elvira's balcony so that he can serenade the maid who would not, he says, be so attracted to a gentleman's clothing the clothing of a don. Gentlemen's trappings have little credit with people like of that class, he says with a straight face. By the way, this is not just De Ponte. Uh, others before him did this in Don Juan plays. Giovanni's about to serenade the maid when Elvira appears on her balcony, yet another frustration of Giovanni's conquest. Elvira thinks she's alone. Be silent, unfair heart. Don't beat so. He is cruel un impio, a traitor, un torratore. It's a sin to feel sorry for him, but she's hurting. Leporello, now dressed as Giovanni, stands in front of his master and pantomimes Giovanni's words, Elvira, my adored. While engaging in this trickery, 
he says he's already repented. Believe me, or I'll kill myself, he says, with Leporello trying to muffle a laugh. This Jacoba's last for 10 minutes. Personally, all too often, I think it's hammed up. And frankly, it requires, I think, done in a straight face. To succeed, Leporello should mimic the actions, the body language of Giovanni, which he knows so well, having worked for him. Alvira comes down, and Giovanni, now disguised as a street bandit, rushes her and Leporello aside, making room for just himself and the maid. Now comes one of the opera's most sublime moments. Un empio, yes. Un traditore, yes. But nevertheless, sublime. It's his serenade to the maid. And what makes it so magical is the mandolin accompaniment with the bit of pizzicato strings. Here is Peter Mattei, our Giovanni, with the mandolin. Come to the window, my treasure. Come, console my weeping. recent article in Opera News, I think the current Opera News, talks about Don Giovanni's history at the Met, which I said began the year the Met began. But listen to this bass, who sang Giovanni 64 times at the Met and on tour between 1929 and 1948. <laughs> But once again, Giovanni's conquest is frustrated. Now by Mazzetta, who believes from the clothing that Giovanni is Leporello, and he unwittingly discloses to Giovanni how he's going to kill Giovanni. Giovanni turns the tables on Mazzetta and beats him up. Fortunately, Zerlino appears and administers a balm. Natural, not bitter tasting, and the apothecary doesn't know how to make it. I'll leave the rest to your imagination. Let's jump to another high point, though, the great sextet. It's here in the single ensemble where Giacozzo meets drama. We're in the dark, yet again, courtyard in front of Anna's house, the house where her father was killed. We don't know why we're there, but the Bonte placed us there. Leporello, still dressed as Giovanni, is trying to rid himself of Elvira, trying to escape any way he can. The sextet is just one of the highlights of the opera, and let me just introduce it to you voice by voice. First, we'll hear Elvira. 
Where is my husband? Leporello. The more I look for it, the more I can't find it. Wretched glory. Ottavio and Anna. Let me reintroduce Ottavio and Anna because I think what Mozart did is so brilliant. They're still in mourning, or she is still in mourning. And we hear almost this funereal introduction to the both of them. Listen again, and listen for the timpani just to give it this color here. Dry your eyes, my love, he says. And Anna says, at least allow my grief for her father's murder. That's the fourth voice. Carolina Emerson. Pity Alvira, he's my husband. Have mercy. Pieta, Pieta. No, the others say he must die. Leperol sheds his Giovanni wardrobe and begs for forgiveness. Here's where we have the Il Mio Tesoro, and I'm going to call back here Matthew Polanzani to give it to us. He asked them to go to his treasure, Il Mio Tesoro, Anna, and console her. I've seen productions where they leave, and then he sings his Il Mio Tesoro, doing what we, in Broadway, would be called a number in one, just him standing there. And it is great effect. And I, I wonder, as I hear this, and I've heard it for so many years, what made it so difficult that 200 years ago, a tenor just couldn't sing it, so they had to add the other aria. But it is just one of music's great moments. But let's go to the cemetery scene. It's a moonlit night. The cemetery has a monument of the commendatory, which tells us what I told you earlier, that this must be spread over a few days to give a stonemason time to carve a monument. Giovanni describes his encounter with una fanciulla bella giovane and galante, a pretty girl, he says, young and flirtatious, who mistakes Giovanni for Leporello. Remember, they've exchanged wardrobes. Here's the irony. Giovanni may have had a successful conquest, but with a victim who thought him to be Leporello because of the change of clothing. 
They laugh it up, as Giovanni suggests that the young girl must have been one of Leporello's lady loves. But suppose that had been my wife, Leporello says. So much the better, Don Giovanni says. And with those words, so much the better, the opera changes dramatically. First, we hear, as Giovanni laughs at that, so much the better, we hear, you will cease laughing at dawn. It's the commendatory. It's the statue of the commendatory. Banquet Hall, Leporello is now preparing for a meal and invites Don Giovanni, invites the commendatory for the meal. He says, Leporello, invite him. Don Giovanni actually makes the invitation. There's a conversation between Giovanni and Leporello, but musically, Mozart and Ponte share with us some inside joking. Listen to this segment. It's amazing how some of these arias from these Don Giovanni, Cosi Fatute, but especially the marriage of Figaro, became popular hit tunes. And so when they're played, people recognize them the way we would recognize top 40 songs today. So they're getting ready for the banquet, and the two eat, and Leporello hears one of the stage bands playing an aria from Cosavara, a Vicente Martin, with a text by Lorenzo de Ponte. So it's an inside joke. And Luncosa Rara actually competed with Figaro in popularity in, in Vienna. So the audiences knew this music. And so to hear it from the stage in this opera was really quite charming. <laughs> Leporello recognizes this music. Luncosa Rara. And Leporello says, what do you think? Uh, what do you think of this nice concert? Giovanni says to Leporello. Leporello says, it conforms to your worth. And I have no idea what to make of that line. But the two go on sampling their buffet. And let me play you the next familiar song, aria, from Il Due Litiganti, Two Litigants, by Giuseppe Sarti, who Mozart referred to as an honest and good man. And in fact, well, let me first play you this from the uh, Cosarara what a tasty dish. Next, the band will play something from Idui Litiganti, from uh, Sarti, who Mozart referred to, as I say, as an honest man. But I want to play for you what Mozart did with this passage by making a piano variation of it to show his respect for him. Now Leporello recognizes it. This is from Edui Litiganti, the two litigants. 
But the passage that really got their attention, got the audience's attention, was the reference to Non Pio Andrei from the end of the first act of Marriage of Figaro. Leperel hears this and says, ah, this one I know only too well. Don't forget, it just had its premiere a year before, and everyone recognizes that. It was the hit tune. People were humming it, whistling it, and singing it on the streets. Oh, I know that one pretty well. The Jocoso ends abruptly when we hear Elvira enter. She enters tempestuously. It's a storm that brings her in. One last chance, she offers Giovanni to reform herself. Listen to this. We'll take it up where we hear the non più and drive from Figaro. And listen to how we're interrupted by this storm that is Elvira. says, this woman almost reduces me to tears. But Giovanni proclaims only, hurrah for the gentle sex, hurrah for good wine, support and glory of mankind. Elvira leaves, but she's shocked by what greets her at the doorway. It's the statue of the commendatory, the commander, he's come to dinner. He's accepted Giovanni's invitation. Giovanni has met his match. For the past hour, we've talked about Giovanni's attempted conquests, and his sheer malice, his assault upon Anna, his murder of the commendatory, his humiliation of Elvira, his abuse of Zerlina, his belittlement of Mazzetto. Ottavio, I'm ignoring him the way the Don did. When the stone guest extends his hand to Giovanni, he drags him to hell. The commendatory will hear grasping Giovanni's hand, Who's rending my soul, Giovanni says. Who's prodding my vitals? Listen to this. Listen to the commendatory clasp John Giovanni's hand and dragging him to hell. the fall of the womanizer. Our director, Ivo van Hove, reminds us that Il Dissoluto of the original title, Mozart was attracted to the Dissoluto, to the punishment of Giovanni. But I can't conclude this drama Giacoso with just the drama. I need the Giacoso too. The concluding sextet was not included in the Vienna production and has been around, has been from time to time omitted. Let me just tell you personally that if you omit the sextet, you have a completely different opera. We know what became of Giovanni, but how about the others? 
Octavio says, this is the time for Anna and him to marry. Anna says, I need another year. <laughs> Elvira enters the convent, or maybe returns to the convent. Zerlina and Mazzetto, I love this, go home for dinner. And Leporello, notwithstanding his Faticar, note to journal Faticar, in which he says, I don't want to serve anymore. I want to play the gentleman, says he's going to go out and find a better master. And they all say, this is the end of those who do wrong. Anything I say in conclusion is um, superfluous. There is nothing you can say about it. It does speak for itself. It is perfection. This is heaven. Enjoy it. Thank you. That was lecturer Philip Gainsley discussing Mozart's famous work, Don Giovanni. This opera is currently on the Met stage until June 2nd in a new production from the acclaimed director, Ivo Van Hova, and will be seen live in HD worldwide on May 20th, 2023. For more information, visit metopera.org and make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.